We're going to be doing something different this morning, at least different than any time since I've been here. We are embarking on a new series. And the series is called The Circle Maker. It's based out of a book by Mark Batterson, whom Pastor Mark and Pastor Jeff and Christian and I and those that went with us to district council last year had the opportunity to hear Mark speak. Pastor Mark and Pastor Jeff and I are going to tag team today. All three of us are going to preach one point. I'm at the end, so I get whatever time's left over. We've come to a place in our lives and in the life of the church where I believe the Lord desires us to no longer be satisfied with where we're at. We've actually come to a point in time where in the American church this past week I spent three days in, in Presbyter's meeting, which is the business meeting of our district. And we began to discuss our inability even to begin to dream in some ways. And I believe that the Lord wants to begin to dust us off in our spirits and in our hearts as to what He desires of us. So this morning I pray that your hearts and your souls will be open as the Lord begins to lead us on a journey which I believe will transform our prayer life and will begin to transform the way we dream and the way that we grab hold of Scriptures and the passion in which we pursue God. And so this morning I introduce to you Pastor Mark as he begins to start our message this morning on The Circle Maker. It was almost the end of the month of the Adar, the last month of the Jewish calendar. Now for Jewish people, Adar is a month of hope and joy. In fact, it's said that when Adar comes, joy increases. It is a month of celebration featuring the holiday of Purim, which celebrates the salvation of the Jews from the genocide plot of the Haman. But this particular year, the month of Adar was almost over and there was no hope or joy. It was the first century B.C. and a devastating drought threatened to destroy a generation, the generation before Jesus. The last of the Jewish prophets had died nearly four centuries before. Miracles were such a distant memory that they seemed like a false memory, and God was nowhere to be heard. But there was one man, an eccentric sage, who lived outside the walls of Jerusalem, who dared to pray anyways. His name was Honey. And even if the people could no longer hear God, he believed that God could still hear them. When rain is plentiful, it's an afterthought. But during a drought, it's the only thought. And Honey was their only hope. Famous for his ability to pray for rain, it was on this day, the day that Honey would earn his moniker. So what did Honey do? He followed the example of the prophet Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 2 opens with the prophet awaiting God's answer to his request. And the prophet declares, I will stand upon my watch and station me within a circle. And so likewise, Honey positioned himself outside the city gate. And with a six-foot staff in hand, Honey began to turn like a mass compass. His circular motion was rhythmic and methodical. 90 degrees, 180 degrees, 270 degrees, 360 degrees. He never looked up at the crowd as they looked on. After what seemed like hours, but what only seconds had gone by, Pony stood inside the circle he had drawn. Then he dropped to his knees and raised his hands to heaven. With the authority of the prophet Elijah, who called down fire from heaven, Pony called down rain. Lord of the universe, I swear before your great name that I will not move from this circle until you have shown mercy upon your children. The words sent a shudder down the spine of all those who were within earshot that day. It wasn't just the volume of his voice, it was the authority of his tone. Not a hint of doubt. His prayer didn't originate in the vocal cords, but like a well of water from an artisan's well, the words flooded from the depth of his soul. His prayer was resolute, yet humble, confident, 
meek, expectant, yet unassuming, that it happened. As his prayer ascended to the heavens, raindrops descended to the earth. An audible gasp swept across thousands of congregants who had encircled Pony. Every head turned heavenward as the first raindrops parachuted from the sky, but Honey's head remained bound. The people rejoiced over each drop, but Honey wasn't satisfied with the sprinkle. Still kneeling within the circle, Honey's voice lifted and with sounds of, over the sounds of celebration. Not for such rain have I prayed, but for rain that will fill cisterns, pits, and caverns. The sprinkle turned into a torrent, torrential downpour. The eyewitnesses said no raindrop was smaller than an egg. It rained so heavily and so steadily that people fled to the Temple Mount to escape the flash floods. Pony stayed and prayed inside the, the protracted circle. Once more, he refined his bold requests. Not for such rain have I prayed, but for rain of thy favor, blessing, and graciousness. Then, like a well-proportioned sun shower on a hot and humid August afternoon, it began to rain calmly and peacefully. Each raindrop was a tangible token of God's grace. And they didn't just soak the skin, they soaked the spirit with faith. It would be forever remembered as the day. The day thunderclaps applauded the Almighty. The day puddle jumping began became an act of praise. And the day the legend of the circle maker was born. It had been difficult to believe the day before the day. But the day after the day, it was impossible not to believe. Pony was celebrated as a hometown hero amongst the Jewish people. Because for so long, this need for rain permeated everything that they did. But some people within the Sanhedrin called the circle maker into question. A fraction believed that drawing a circle demand, demanding rain dishonored God. Maybe it was those same members of the Sanhedrin who criticized Jesus when he healed the withered arm of the man on the Sabbath day. They threatened Honey with ex excommunication, but because the miracle could not be denied, Honey was ultimately honored for his act of prayerful bravado. The prayer that saved a generation was deemed one of the most significant prayers in the history of Israel. The circle he drew in the sand became a sacred symbol. And the legend of Honey the Circle Maker stands as a testament of the power of a single prayer to change this course of history. The earth has circled the sun more than 2,000 times since Honey prayed this prayer. But the timeless truth that's in this ancient legend is tr as true now as it was then. That bold prayers honor God and God honors bold prayers. God isn't offended by our biggest dreams or our boldest prayers. He's offended by anything less. If your prayers are not impossible for you to do, they are insulting to God. Why? Because they do not require divine intervention. But ask God to part the Red Sea or make the sun stand still or float an iron axe head. And we see God moved by His omnipotent action. And the bigger the circle that we draw, the better, because God gets more of the glory. The greatest moment in life are the miraculous moments when human impotence collides with God's omnipotence. When they, intersect, when they intersect and we see that the circle that we have drawn and the impossible situations of our lives invite God to intervene. It's absolutely imperative that you understand this at the beginning of this series as we go through because it will change everything about what our understanding of our relationship with God. And it is this simple yet life-changing truth that God is for you. God is for you. If you don't believe that, then your prayers will be small and timid. 
If you do believe it, then you will pray big, audacious prayers. And one way or another, the small, timid prayers or the big, audacious prayers will change the trajectory of your life and turn you into two totally different people. Prayers are kind of like prophecies. They are the best predictors of our spiritual future. Who you become is determined by how you pray. Ultimately, the transcripts of our prayers become the script of our life. I want to be really, really careful here at the beginning as we continue to move through this because there are certain teachings that may or may not be as as biblically sound as it relates to this idea of making our requests of God. Different Different people will refer to it in different ways, but certainly this idea of claiming, and we'll talk about it a little bit later, is one of those very controversial ideas, that we would make these grand demands of God. But what I want you to see is there's a difference between what we're talking about and just claiming things and and demanding of God to do something for us. Drawing prayer circles starts with discerning what God wants and what God wills. Drawing circles has more to do with what God's desire is, what God's dreams are that He has implanted in us than what we believe our wants or our needs or our our, our own selfish desires are. And so the first step for us is discerning what God wants and what God wills. And it has to be rooted in the idea or the understanding that God is for us. God is for us. And until His... Sovereign will becomes our sanctified wish. Your prayer life will be unplugged from the power supply of God. Sure, we can apply some of these principles that we may learn throughout this series and maybe get some of the things that we want as we pray for them. But getting what you want isn't the goal. The goal is glorifying God by drawing circles around the promises, miracles, and dreams that He wants. I'm going to ask my wife, uh, Melissa, to come on up with our baby girl, Kaya. And I want to share with you just really quickly this morning as I conclude my time here with you uh, a, a miracle that was needed in our lives. And that miracle started when we first had a, went in for our first sonogram. And um, God, for whatever reason, decided to kind of give us a heads up that we were going to be having twins. Uh, And so when we saw the sonogram for the first time and we saw very clearly that there were two separate uh, lives taking place uh, that that had been initiated, um, our hearts were super excited as opposed to super fearful. Actually, what was super fearful is when they told us it may be triplets. I, they, I, I feel like they did that on purpose so that when we returned the next time, they were like, oh, no, 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 it was just twins. We're like, whew, we can handle twins. Triplets are a little scary. So if they tell you that you're having quadruplets, it may be triplets, just to be aware. But I'm going to have Mel help me in sharing a little bit of the story of our journey as it related uh, to what God was doing through the lives of these babies. So we were having twins. Um, yes, God had kind of given me a clue before we saw the sound that we were having twins. Um, and so I wasn't as shocked. I was more like, you confirmed it, Lord. You confirmed it. That's awesome. Um, but a couple months later, um, as you know, as you're going through the pregnancy process, you have something called an anatomical scan um, where they go through and they look at every single part of the, of the baby's body, the head, check out the brain, make sure everything's in order, the heart, does it have four ventricles, um, they go through, you know, is there five fingers, five, you know, sorry, ten fingers, ten toes. Um, they just kind of go through. They also do, they can do genetic scans as well, which we, did, we preferred not to do at that moment because it wasn't going to really make a difference whether we had the pregnancy or not, so we chose not to do that. But when we did the anatomical scan, it seemed like everything was fine. They didn't say there was anything wrong with one of our babies. So we went out of that scan. Everything seemed fine. And then at our next appointment, um, usually I, we had Ellie come with us to the Sanos, and then Mark would leave with them, and I would go to the appointment thinking, oh, no big deal. Everything seems to be normal. This pregnancy has been normal all the way through. So when we went back for our next appointment, Mark had gone, and I went into the office, and the the nurse practitioner said to me, we think that your baby, actually, she didn't say we think, she goes, we believe that your baby has bilateral club feet. 
And if you don't know a bilateral club fee, it means that the feet are turned inwards like this. Um, the, um, I guess the leg is bowed and your feet are turned in like this, which requires correction after um, after they're born. If we're, so the, for the case of Kaya, they looked at it, they said, we believe she has bilateral complete. We don't know what causes this. It could be genetic, it could be positional, where she is in your womb based on your, where your other twin is, or it could be um, something that's connected with another disease or another genetic thing. We're not sure what's going on. And so I remember sitting there in the office thinking, bad choice not to have Mark here, bad choice. Um, so I was kind of stunned, and I just didn't really say much, didn't have much questions, didn't have much information about it. I just remember from my background in some medical training that when someone said club feet, it never was a really good thing. Um, and so... Um, not having any medical background, I made the mistake that I think a lot of parents do, and that I Googled imaged clubbed feet, um, which, which may be helpful in kind of preparing your brain, and at the same time, absolutely devastating when I began to see what is would potentially be the future for this young baby when I began to see the the what she would have to endure as an infant and what she would have to go through as as they began the process of of repairing uh, the the deformity of of her legs and, and of her feet and um, it was crushing now, being in America, we are very fortunate, and you can correct club feet. If we were in a country that didn't have medical care such as we did, there would be the possibility that she would be lame um, or she could not walk because she could not have access to medical care. So I do not want you to think that we were hopeless when we first got this diagnosis, but we definitely were scared and were questioning what was going on with our baby and what was the outcome and would it work? Would the correction correct at 100% or would we have to do surgery? We weren't sure. We looked at the process. She would have to be... Um, in cast for the first couple months of her life and then she would have to get a slight surgery where they would release the tendon in her Achilles heel so they could stretch it out and then she would be in a brace, a brace um, until she was four years old in the evenings. So it's a pretty extensive process for correcting this and um, if not done correctly could um, also cause also things as well. Um, so we were pretty um, nervous. I was very nervous knowing I was going to be home with the twins. So not only was I going to have twins but one of them was going to have this process going on the first couple months of her life. So I was very, very scared and very, very frustrated um, with what the whole process and what was going on. But um, in that moment, we, we called out to God. Um, yes, it was correctable, but yes, we believe that God is great. And yes, we believe that God can do things um, before the medical system necessarily has to become involved with the care of someone. I believe in doctors. I believe in medicine. I believe that God created them. I also believe that God heals as well. Which is why, uh, when, they, when we saw the, the sonogram image, and we, they gave us a pretty clear image uh, of, of her legs, and, and not being an expert in any way at reading sonograms or anything, it was, it was painstakingly obvious to us that there was a, there was a severe bend uh, to her feet. And so we began the process, uh, in addition to prayer, began the process of looking, uh, talking to pediatric or uh, orthopedics and, and things like that to, to figure out how to prepare ourselves for uh, what this transition was going to look like when the baby was born. We, around that time, we had our mission, and um, we knew this was going on. And I remember sitting in the pew, and I cried back there during worship, and I'm like, I'm not going to cry up here. <laughs> but I remember sitting there as a missionary was up there, and I remember thinking, God, I don't know what the process is going to be, but I know that you're in control. And as a missionary sat up here, and she, you know, it was a female missionary we had this year, and she was wonderful. And I remember God telling me, Zachariah, blessed are the feet that bring good news, bring the gospel. And I remember thinking to myself, blessed are Kaya's feet. Blessed, no matter where she goes and what she's going to do, God has a hand in her care. And yes, we probably would suffer the most in the first couple of months, and she probably wouldn't remember, but blessed are, is what God is going to do in her feet, through her feet, and through her body, and through her life. And so in that moment, I trusted that God was going to do something great. And I didn't know if it was going to be before she was born or after she was born. I just knew that God was going to work, and it was going to be great. And that if we prayed, God would answer our prayers. So we connected with uh, with some folks that were uh, that, that some family and some close friends, and 
Uh, we shared it with them. We, we honestly didn't want to make a, a huge deal out of it, only because uh, we didn't know what kind of questions to answer uh, to people with the questions that we had. And so we began to draw a circle around, uh, around Kaya and around her feet. And we, we sought God in prayer and, and asked that God would do uh, something amazing. And so fast forward uh, nine months later, and it's time for delivery. And um, and Kaya was the was referred to as Baby A in the womb, and so uh, Baby A was ready to come out, and uh, and and uh, the birth went phenomenally. Mel was amazing, and Baby A came out, and of course, uh, all through the process, even with the excitement of, of birth, the first thing that my eyes did as soon as the baby came out is I had to know what, what we were getting ourselves into. I had to know how to prepare Mel. I had to know how to prepare myself mentally. And as soon as Kai came out, I looked at her feet and I was like, ah, I'm not seeing what they're seeing. I don't understand. I, I don't, maybe, maybe it's not there just yet or maybe they grow into it. I don't, I'm not sure what's happening. But I looked at her feet and I was like, I don't, th- I don't see anything wrong with her legs. I don't see anything. I don't. I don't see any. I don't see anything wrong with her feet. And then, of course, my my feeble mind thought, oh, maybe they they flip places in there. They do jumping jacks in there. I was like, maybe who was baby A is now baby B, and baby B is now baby A. And so, as they as they were taking care of uh, of Kaya, and we were we were ready for push number two, and uh, and and Brielle came out. I looked at her feet as well, and I was like, I cannot see anything wrong with her feet. And, and so still trusting and believing that God had done something miraculous, but honestly looking for confirmation that God had done a miracle the, the, that afternoon, uh, the first pediatrician came in and we, we said to them immediately, now we just want to let you know that when we had the sonogram, the doctor said that, uh, that, that the baby was going to have clothing. Check them both. We don't know what happened in there. Check both babies. And the, the first pediatrician said, her feet look fantastic. Her feet look great. There doesn't seem to be any issues. The next day, the next pediatrician on rounds came in and we're like, like, hey, we just want to let you know that we were told that there was a possibility that our baby was going to have club feet. Do you mind checking them out? Uh, the, the doctor looked at it and said, her, their feet look fantastic. They look great. And so then we go in for our appointment at the doctor a couple of weeks later, and we're like, so we just want to let you know that they said there was this possibility that uh, the baby was going to have club feet. And praise God, her feet are perfect. Um, thank you. For, for, for whatever reason, other than I can just explain that the fact that God is for us, that He chose to reach into the womb and, and took care and, and massaged and straightened out and did whatever was necessary uh, so that this poor little girl uh, would be able to run around and keep up with her big sister and her twin sister. And, and uh, God has been so good to us. He's, we're so thankful uh, that God has, has, has you, cho- chosen to use us for this miracle. We pray that it would be one that as we continue to move through this series would be a, a source of encouragement for you. Uh, an opportunity for us to glorify God and thank Him uh, for the miracle that, that He performed in our lives. But I just wanted to take a minute and Melissa and I wanted to share that story with you. As we transition... Amen. One of the things that, that we will learn as we spend time in understanding exactly what circle making and what type of prayer this is called for in the situation is it has so much more to do with us and our hearts and in relationship and in connection with God that there's some significance as to how we ourselves are, are hearing from God and, and understanding His discernment. And in a way that only Jeff Hill can transition us, I have a video that I want you to take a look at here this morning. Scott, we need to talk. Don't look at me like that. Don't, don't look at me like you didn't know I've been in here doing this. Oh, what, you shocked? You shocked, princess? Huh? You shocked? You shocked that I'm finally standing up for what's right? The, the, the fact that I'm in here doing the dishes and you're sitting on, you're sitting on my couch? You're a spoiled rat. When you wake up, who puts the food in your bowl? Who washes the bowl that I put your food in? Who gives you water? Huh? What if I just took all that stuff away? How do you think your ancestors survived? Huh? In the prehistoric days, how do you think the cats made it? They went out in the woods, and they found something, they killed it, and they eat it. You know what I do? I go to Ralph's. I buy you a can of tuna, I put it in your bowl, and you sit there and lay down and eat it like a beached whale. You're a disgrace to the feline humanity. You know that?
until what? So you move behind the curtain and the problem just goes away? Is that what you're saying? You move behind the curtain and the problem just goes away. Right, perfect. Of course it does. Of course it does. Everything's fine. Problem's, problem solved. I think everything's good. Praise God, amen? <laughs> there are times where I feel like that cat. Where I feel like I'm this fat, fluffy character laying around like a beached whale waiting for my next meal from God. And every time God comes through, says, here you go, here's your meal, you fat beached whale. He leaves out the fat beached whale because he loves me. He cleans me up. He takes care of my messes. He takes care of me. But all the while, he is asking me to get up. He's asking me, I have blessed you this much, but it is only because I am preparing you for you to receive more. And sometime you are going to have to trust me enough to obey what I am calling you to so that you can receive even more than what I have already given you. And there are times where I've, I talk to God and I say, you know what, I am very comfortable where I am right now. I am laying down on my stomach, laying in the sun. I'm having my meal you have saved me. You have given me life. I don't know if I want to do anything more than this because what you have given me is already pretty good. And at, that, at, at times like those, God is telling me, don't you understand that I can do exceedingly and abundantly beyond what you can ask or think? And not only can I do it, but I want to. You see, we serve a God who wants to do more than we can ask or think in our lives. But sometimes, in order for us to receive more, we have to step out in obedience to what God is calling us to in order for us to receive it. He's not going to pick us up and position us and move us to one place or another. We have to actually trust Him enough to start moving our feet in the direction that He is leading us. Notice that it's He who is leading us. It is He who is promising. It is He who has the plans together. We don't come into the equation except for one thing, obedience. We already see that God is a God who is great and merciful. We've heard testimony today of how God intervened because He is good, gracious, and compassionate in the lives of Pastor Mark and Mel and their daughter. But how, how many of you know that their blessing in their lives, both individually and corporately, doesn't end there? God is not finished with their lives. He wants to continually pour out His blessing. And as a result, there are going to be moments where it's going to require obedience on their part in order to step in fully to what God has. See, this is the principle that we find in the Bible. That complete obedience leads to complete blessing. Complete obedience leads to complete blessing. We find that this is something that is laid out for us in Scripture. So if you can, would you please turn with me to Joshua chapter 6. And as you are turning, let me give you a little bit of a black of a lead up to our story of the miracle that happened in Jericho. We find that God was dealing with Abraham and he was saying, "Abraham, I want to bless your descendants. And so I'm going to give you a promise. I'm going to promise to you that your descendants are going to inherit this land." You fast forward through time and you see where are the descendants of Abraham? Enslaved in Egypt. So far, God's blessing and His promise isn't working out really well for them at that point. If I were them, I would have looked and said, uh, God, remember that blessing? Take a look around. Not blessing. 
take a look at this. Not much of a promise. In fact, I could have done this garbage on my own. But at that moment, in their anguish, in their pain, in their oppression and trials and tribulations, they cried out with one voice and said, God, please deliver us. And God began to move in a miraculous way. In such a miraculous way, He moved that decades later, in a country far away from Egypt, they were still talking about how God moved in a miraculous way in Egypt to set His people free. They were still talking about it. But God wasn't done. He wasn't finished. It wasn't enough to deliver His people. He wanted to give them a place that was their own. A place where they could have that they owned that was given to them by God. You see, He still had a promise to fulfill. He still he had a promise that He made and it was yet to be fulfilled. He wanted to make sure that it happened. So as a result, He brought the nation of Israel right up to the border, right up to the very edge of their blessing, right up to the very edge of what He had promised them. And the people looked and they saw how beautiful the land was. Look at the milk. Will you look at all the honey? It's beautiful. What is that? Who? There's an obstacle. Look at all the people there. Look at some of the big people there. God, you never told me about the people. In fact, you told me you were going to give us our land. This looks like other people's land. What is this all about? I don't know if I want to go over there. I know you said you were going to bless me, but that looks scary. I'm afraid. I've just walked across the desert. It's really, it's been hot. I'm dehydrated. I don't know if I have the energy to do that. You know what? Maybe it would be better if we went back to Egypt. So God, in order for Him to fulfill His promise, in order for a generation to experience God's full blessing, He had to wait for an entire generation to die off so that His second generation can rise up and begin to experience God's full blessing. A generation that didn't have any connections to Egypt. A generation that all they knew throughout their entire lives is, I'm in the desert, and at some point, God is going to move. It's going to be great. It'll happen someday. I don't know about you, but there will be points that if I heard that every single day of my life, I would go, I'll believe it when I, I'll believe it when I see it. But then Joshua comes. He comes and says, hey, hey, guys, guys, guess what? Today's the day. Today's the day where you're going to move and step out from where you are and where I've given you manna and I've been with you this entire time. Today's the day where you're going to experience my full blessing. Today's the day that I'm going to fulfill the promise that I made to your ancestors. Today is the day. Can you imagine the anticipation that they must have felt? This is the moment that they have been living up to their entire lives. And we see it being played out where they're going into the promised land and God points out a city, Jericho. says, this is the city I want you to take first. Let's take a look at it. Joshua chapter 6, starting with verse 1. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war, going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. And on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times. And the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn... Then you hear the sound of the trumpet, when all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. 
And the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. Skip down to verse 10. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once. And then they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord, walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. I'm imagining that after a while, that probably got to be a little bit annoying. Moving on. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. And on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned into the camp. So they did for six days. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, the priests had blown the trumpets. Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within, it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction. Lest you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing of destruction and bring trouble upon it. For all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. And as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. So the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city, and they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. It's an impressive story. Perhaps you can walk with me a little bit here on what it must have looked like in their eyes. This is a group of people that knew nothing but deserts and tents. They didn't know much about permanent structures like buildings, much less a city. Can you imagine what it must have looked like and what it must have felt to those people when they saw Jericho? Walls that, were, that the Bible talks about that had to come down. According to archaeology, that they went over and took a look at this city. We see that they had two walls that were there. So not one wall had to come down, two. They had an outer wall and an inner wall. The outer wall was possibly as thick as six feet. Think about that for a moment. Six feet, which means if the beginning of the wall is here... It's nothing but brick until I get to right about here. Nothing between here and the stage is nothing but brick. And God is saying, this is, this is what I'm going to ask you to conquer. I'll bring it down, but that's pretty thick, isn't it? The second wall could have been as high as 50 feet. No, I'm not as, I'm not really good with the measuring thing, and I know that this isn't going to be accurate. But imagine that you have never seen a building before, and the first thing that you see is this thick wall, and then you see something that is high as that peak up there. This is what they're looking at for the first time. And as they begin circling around the city, what is their strategy? You're going to walk around, don't say anything, Blow trumpets announcing to everybody in the city, Hey, there's an army here that's going to kill you eventually. And then eventually, you're going to shout, Go! That's your military strategy. March. Can you imagine what they must have felt as they're going around realizing, Hey, I don't know if you guys have realized this, but as we're walking around here, the army that is waiting inside that knows we're here, they could just come out at any moment and wipe us out. And we're not supposed to do anything until day seven. And even then, not supposed to do it until we shout, which I imagine if an army's coming at you, you probably will shout at some point. 
But that's, that, that's what they were faced with. Imagine as they're going around the city and they're seeing this wall and they're constantly being reminded of the obstacle that stood in place from them receiving the blessing. Imagine how many times they had to remind themselves, okay, God is going to do this, not me. God is going to bring down the walls. God is going to remove the obstacles. Imagine what it must have been like as they go through and they realize, I say anything for seven days. You ever been in a room full of people where you're trying to get them to be quiet? It's very hard. In fact, there are points where we may experience this on Sunday mornings where we're trying to get things to quiet down a little bit. There's always someone who has something to say, including, well, why is it that we have to stop talking? Imagine as you're walking by And you're like, boy, I am hot. I'm tired. Why do I have to carry this gear if I'm not going to go in on the seventh day? Why? All these questions, why? And oh, by the way, what is that smell? Who did that? What is it? Put something on your feet because that's bad. All these things that you know people are going, it's going through their thoughts and through their heads. You know they wanted to say something. Oh, by the way, stop kicking my feet. Stop, stop speeding up and slowing down, guy in front of me, because I keep on having to change because of your pace. Imagine, imagine if in their disobedience they said, you know what, if we're not moving in until day seven, I'm not going to march around the first six days. Seventh day is when it's happening, so I'm going to go into my tent I'm going to take a nap, prepare for the big day, and then I'll go in on the seventh day. Imagine all these things where they said, we could have gone in with a battering ram. We could have gone in and shot arrows over the wall. We could have done all these things differently. We could do all these things in order for us to be comfortable. We can do all these things that we think we are entitled to do. It's silly for us to think that we can't do some of these things. It's silly for us to do what we're doing now. Imagine if they had that moment of of temptation to do something differently. The Bible tells us that because they fully obeyed, they were able to fully reap God's blessing. So what does that mean for us today? It means that if God can do something great like that, then we probably shouldn't be afraid to ask and pray bold, audacious prayers. It also means, though, that it's not good enough to just pray bold, audacious prayers. There is going to be a moment when God responds to your bold, audacious prayers and says, I want you to start moving and obeying me and start doing something that is bold and audacious. It's going to require obedience on your part, and it's going to require the faith. If you have the trust and the faith to say, this is what I want from you, God, you have to have enough faith and trust to say, okay, now that you have told me to move and you're answering my prayer, I'm going to start stepping and walking towards the blessing that you have for us. Amen? Lord, give us the years to hear what you are saying to us that we, and help us in our unbelief so that we can march forward and receive God's blessing. Amen? Worship team, would you please come? The nice thing about a series is that we can do it at our own time. I'm thankful for the men of God that preach the Word of God. Thankful for the gifts that God has given us as a church. In your bulletin, there's another point, and frankly, it will be the first point of the message for next week of defining your dream. I believe that the Lord wants His people to learn to dream God-sized dreams again. 
I believe some of you have needs within your families and needs within your homes and needs within your jobs that are going to require you as a family to say, you know what, we're going to circle the promise of God and we're not moving until God does something. We read the Word. Sometimes we underline things from the Word, but there was something about Honey that day when he drew that circle that was different than anything before. He began to say, I'm getting really serious about what I know of my God. And it transformed a nation. I believe God is going to call us to get serious about what we know of God, what we know of His Word, begin to lay hold of it, and begin to pray with a passion that some of us haven't prayed for in years and some of this generation has never experienced yet. I'm going to ask that you would stand with me, please. I couldn't help but have tears in my eyes as Pastor Mark and Mel were talking about the miracle that God did from sometime after the sonogram was taken and sometime before that baby entered the world, God stepped in and said, I'm going to take you from a place of fear to a place of promise. A lot of you probably have testimonies just like that of things that you were so afraid of and so fearful of and God stepped in and took care of it. And sometimes some of you are facing those fears right now and I want you to know God has not forgotten you. We were singing a song this morning that said, I never walk alone. Do you know how comforting that is? To know that we do not walk alone. And our God is with us. For some of you, the greatest miracle of your life is going to take place this morning because this is the day that He's going to transform you from being one person that has walked without Him to a person that is walking with Him. You've heard it used in all kinds of different terminologies. Some call it getting saved. Some call it coming to faith. I just know that there's a moment when every person is required to decide, today is the day that I choose to believe Jesus that I choose to believe that He's died for me, that I choose to believe He can transform me, that I choose to believe He can make me into a new person. Today, I choose to believe. And I'm going to ask that you would close your eyes for a moment and bow your heads. And I want to give an opportunity for you today that if you would like to make that decision, I want to make it easy and I do not want to embarrass you, but I'm simply going to ask if today is the day that you're going to choose to receive Jesus Christ, you're going to choose to believe Him, you're going to take a step of faith. I simply want you just to look up where you're at and catch my eye and I'm going to agree with you that I'm going to pray for you. Yes, sir, I agree with you. Hallelujah. Yes, sir, I agree with you. Bless your name, Lord. Bless your name, O oh Lord. Bless your name, Lord. Hallelujah. Father God, we stand together this morning having been challenged in your word and both encouraged because of the testimony of people that begin to circle in prayer that you are a healing God. And how you choose to do those things, sometimes we don't all understand, but Lord, we do know you. And I pray that today for the two men that acknowledge that today is their day, I pray that you would begin to settle into their heart the reality that you exist and that you desire to transform their life from what has been to what will be and that the discerning moment will come as a result of believing that you know them, that you love them, that you died for them and that you forgive them. And that at this very moment you are making them a brand new creature in Jesus Christ. Every one of us comes to you the exact same way. People in need of a Savior and people that met you. And I pray that from this moment, Lord, that this would be a discerning moment and a defining moment in their lives. That from this moment forward, they recognize they do not walk alone because they declare you to be Savior and King. Father, for our church, I pray. I believe, Lord, that you are beginning to lead us on a pathway that is going to lead us to greater dreams than we've ever been able to dream before. In our own lives, I pray that you would begin to blow the dust off our ability to dream God-sized dreams. I pray in our families, Lord, that you would begin to reunite husbands and wives in prayer together. That, Father God, joined together in faith and hand in hand, that we can begin to praise God-sized dreams for our families recognizing you want to do something magnificent in us. 
Lord, we want the promise. And we're willing to follow you for it. We pray for our community and our nation today. And I ask, Lord God, that as we humble ourselves and pray that we would begin to see healing take place. We need you now more than ever, oh God. And we are going to be people that will circle the word. Circle the promises. Circle our families. Circle our community. Circle our church. And we will pray until the answers come. And so, Father, this week begin to prepare our hearts for the change that you desire of us as we begin to take this journey together. Father, we ask these things in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. I will tell you this. As we begin to go through this series, I'm going to begin to ask for commitments of prayer perhaps greater than you've ever given before. As we begin to go through this, we're going to begin to have times where we are going to set aside some early in the morning, maybe some in the evenings, but we're going to begin to seek times of corporate prayer together. I've been asking God that He would begin to speak to your hearts to the point where we are not satisfied like that fat cat, but that there would be something within us that would desire more than we've experienced before and all that God has for us. If He has placed His presence upon us for purpose. I want everything that He's got for us. If it means that He's going to have to shake us from complacency, then so be it. But this week, begin to ask the Lord in prayer, what do you need of me, Lord? How do I need to come before you and humbly stand before you? I'm going to ask our worship team to lead us in that song that we were singing. I believe we learned it a week ago. And... We're going to open the altars for those that want to come and stand in the presence of the Lord, but that we do not walk alone. That in this, we are not doing something because we feel it's right. We're doing something because we feel led of the Spirit of God to do. So, Lord, encourage our hearts. And if you feel like you must go today, then I'm going to ask that you would please step out into the, into the foyer and have your conversations there that we can maintain an atmosphere of worship here. If you have chance and have time that you can stand in the presence of the Lord, then please do so. But may God richly bless you. Thank you for being in the house of the Lord.